this belief that one day Jesus Christ, the God-man, will return to reign over the kingdom of God fully is really at the core of our faith. We say in the creed, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And I know that maybe if you're here tonight and maybe you're exploring Christianity or you're wondering about Christianity, that might sound kind of implausible. Uh, maybe you have a hard time kind of believing that. And tonight we're not going to do a sermon on the plausibility of the second coming, but I did just want to make three quick observations. First, any scientist will tell you that the world's going to end one day. It's just a fact. And so the biblical narrative corresponds with what every scientist knows is that one day the world will end. It will end. Second observation that the great stories of our popular culture many of them are kind of obsessed with this idea of the end of the world. Apocalyptic movies are made every year. Zombie movies are made every year. And you could say, well, that's just coincidence, it's just silly. Or is it pointing to something deep in the human soul that's connected to God that knows there's a narrative that's playing out? Third thought, the great stories of our popular culture reflect a longing for a Messiah who will bring about a new world. You know, I didn't understand most of Dune. Um, <laughs> But I did get the sense that the main character is a messianic figure. Why do they keep picking up, peeking up? Because I think buried in the depths of our heart is this sense that, you know, one day this world will end. One day we need a Messiah to come back and put the world to rights. Well, the disciples want to know something a lot of people ask, and that is, when will the kingdom come? We read both the versions of this in Matthew and Mark. And Jesus answers the question in the fifth major section of teaching in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 24, 1 to 4. And we're probably around Tuesday of Holy Week, and they're walking by the temple, which was known as one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was by far the most glorious thing any of the disciples had ever seen. And so the disciples are, they're mostly from the country. Many of them have not seen it before. They're just like in awe. They're, they've got their selfie sticks out. You know, they just can't wait to, to post about it. And Jesus uh, is not that impressed and he, he says, essentially, every stone in this temple will be torn down. That shocks them. They don't know what to do with that. They're not still really sure about all this talk about the kingdom and death and coming again and resurrection. They don't quite understand all of it. And so they ask for some clarity. What do you, what do you mean this is all going to be torn down? And here's what makes reading this passage challenging is it happens in 70 AD when the Romans come in and literally tear it down. But then Jesus seems to be looking at that historical event prophetically and using it as a type of, of judgment at the end of the age. 
So it's a challenging passage to make sense of. Well, Jesus starts off with this warning. He says, hey, they ask, okay, give us signs. Let us know. How are we going to know when it'll be the end? How will we know, he says, uh, the sign of your coming? And that's a Greek word, parousia. It meant, uh, it was used at the time for state visit when an emperor would come. And so it's hard to tell, but they may still have been thinking that, okay, we get this death crucifixion thing, but okay, when are you actually going to come and reign and rule like King David? When when are you coming? Uh, When's it going to happen? What are the signs going to be? And Jesus has this frustrating way of often not answering the question, but using it as an opportunity to teach. And that's really what he does here. He doesn't really answer the question. He says, well, first of all, see that nobody leads you astray, for many will come, saying, I'm the Christ. We really don't get a lot of data there about when he's going to come again. What he seems to be more interested in than figuring out the tea leaves that tell us when the end of the world will be is faithfulness. What he seems to be more interested in is saying, okay, I know you're interested in the signs, but let me tell you this. There's going to be some people that come along that are going to lead you astray. Watch out. Be faithful. Be faithful. Well, then... um, He goes on to describe several other things that are going to happen. We've heard them already. Wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes. All these are the beginning of the birth pangs. Now this is where Christians, I think, sometimes get a little confused. There is this narrative that he he says, okay, that Over time, there's going to be a lot of war, there's going to be a lot of conflict, there's going to be environmental disasters, but that's not really the end. It's actually just the beginning of this birthing of the new creation. He really gives us no answer at all about when it's going to happen. And yet, every generation, Christians go to this verse to say, see, it's happening right now. And I just, I was blogging or reading blogs today and one brother said I've lived for more than half a century and I've seen an avalanche of moral decline in the nation America's falling away from God Christians are living in sin Uh, has anyone been taking notice of all the unnatural events in nature this year the western part of our country is on fire consider the culmination of all these signs plainly evident in our lives today some 2,000 years ago Jesus gave us specific events that would come to pass in our generation today and here they are and then he quotes Matthew 24 and for him that means that Christ is about to return because of all these signs only problem is all these signs have been present in every generation Uh, Christians in the first century when the plagues came and the persecutions they thought that was the end of the age the fifth century they watched the Roman Empire crumble they thought that was the end of the age Uh, in in the 16th century Christians burned each other to death over doctrine they thought that was the end of the age Christians thought the rise of communism was the end of the age Christians thought the bombing of Hiroshima was the end of the age Jesus is saying things that happened 
in every era. And his point seems to be this whole life that you live is a birthing process of the new creation and it's painful and be faithful. You see, he's not answering the question. He's not going to give you details. He's saying, this is going to be hard. Be faithful. He does say that difficult times await the church in verse 9. This is, this is a hard passage. This goes against about everything in American Christianity. <laughs> he says, okay, let, here's my prognosis for the future of the church. They'll put you to death. You'll be hated. A whole lot will fall away. They'll turn on each other. A lot of false prophets will come. Lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Oh my goodness. He is saying that the church somehow will be this remnant minority that it won't gain in cultural power that many if not most people will leave it that it's really hard to be a Christian it's hard to hear many years ago a long time ago now I took a trip to visit missionaries and the first stop was China and I think I mentioned this before and my host took me out one night to look at uh, to meet a brother who was leading a, a vast network of house churches and we had to meet uh, on Saturday night by a dock in the shadows and he left a prayer meeting where everybody was praying that they wouldn't be arrested on Sunday morning and we had to meet in the shadows so nobody would catch him and he told me stories about how the house church network flourished in China under the persecution. And then I flew to Romania and met with some leaders there. They'd had terrible persecution under communism. I remember sitting with Sandy and uh, uh, th- th- this evangelist named John. He looked like John the Baptist. So we were in his apartment. I think it was in, uh, I don't, doesn't matter where it was, but it was where one of the revolutions had taken place. There were still bullet holes in the wall. And he's standing there talking about how he had to leave his wife because they sent him to Cuba for preaching the gospel. And then he talked about all the networks of churches that they were planning under this. I was like, you have no Bibles, no seminaries, no TV. They're killing you and the gospel's flourishing. And then I went to Rome. Met with a missionary there. And then had a day to tour and went into the great massive cathedrals. And it was such a contrast because where the church once had all the power, the princes, the armies, the cathedrals, there's almost no gospel presence. I'll never forget it. That where the church seems to flourish the most is not where she has cultural power and huge buildings and big budgets, but where... She's broken and vulnerable and weak and small. It's such a contrast. Maybe it's the remnant church that reaches the world. The church without power. Well, then he, 
he says something in verse 14 that seems to contradict this. He's, he's, he's saying the you know, church is going to be, it's, it's going to get smaller. It's going to lose cultural power. And then he says, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. I, read, I was reading that earlier this week and I thought this does, doesn't make sense. He says the church gets kind of whittled down, winnowed down, honed down, broken down into this tiny remnant. And then he says that, that church is going to share the gospel with the whole world. And when that happens, I'll come back. Again, he says nothing about time. And today I was thinking maybe what he's saying is that in the upside down economy of the kingdom, the kind of people that are most effective at spreading the kingdom of God are tiny little remnants, broken, weak, vulnerable communities of faith that have few resources and little power in the world. Maybe that's the kind of people that transform the world for Christ. I know this is, this is so hard for the American church. We, we used to have the home field advantage. We don't anymore. We used to have great social power. We don't anymore. Our leaders used to appear on the cover of Time magazine as respected public intellectuals. They don't anymore. And we could wring our hands and worry about that, but maybe actually... We're becoming the kind of church that truly changes the world. So when does the kingdom come? Jesus never answers. He does say, don't put your energy into figuring that out. It's going to be hard. Hold on to each other. Be faithful. Be faithful. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that we'd be be that kind of church that we'd maybe we'll never be really big or really exciting or have lots of power everybody will know about us and maybe we'll never have a ton of money and we just want to be faithful Help us be like that remnant church. Just holding on to each other, caring for each other, caring for our neighbors, quietly going about the work of the kingdom. We don't need headlines. We don't need a lot of media. Just help us be that quiet, leavening presence in our neighborhood. We ask this in your name. Amen.